all about Irish stuff, you know, like the Irish are the most hospitable people. You know, you come over and you get in their door and they're throwing drinks at you. You know, here, get this one down, yeah, get that one down, yeah, drink it down, get that one down, yeah. There you go, down the hatch, get that one down. Then, then you know, two hours later, they're helping you out in the bathroom, going, go on, get it up, get it up, <laughs> go on, get it up. That's hilarious. Hi, I'm Amy Mann, and I'm Ted Leo, and you're, and listening, you're listening to. to the art I thought we could do it together for Oh, let's do it together. And you're listening to The, the art, art of, of process. process. We can't do it together because we're speaking remotely. I'm looking at you on FaceTime. Yeah. And you're like a second behind me. Really? Yeah. That's frustrating. I don't have that delay in this direction. Oh, that's interesting. But you know what? You know who else is not going to have the delay is the listener because I'm going to do my editing magic and they're going to not know what we're talking about right now. Yeah, you're going to make it work. Mm -hmm. But it's hard for us to say things in unison. So you're listening to the art of process. Look, a lot going on this week. A lot happening. We have a very long interview with our friend Eli Addy, who we'll tell you about in a little bit. But in regard to a lot of the things happening this week, or what will have been last week by the time you you hear this, there's something that Eli talks about. He was a speechwriter for a number of politicians, including Al Gore. And at one point in the interview, he mentions Al Gore asking him to insert a few phrases into one of the speeches they were working on. And Eli says, you know, that doesn't exactly fit. Who's that for? And Al Gore says, that's for a constituency of one, meaning... Bill Clinton, you know, wow. who was wow. the president at the time. And um, that's something that we keep coming back to in the news, this idea that people are pitching their public statements for a particular constituency of one, that being our current president. But I guess that's been something that's been ongoing for <laughs> quite a while. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of constituency of one stuff that's that's happening. I mean, I think people picked up on that really quickly because yeah. they just saw how easy he was to manipulate. And they mm -hmm. were like... This is how I can get a job. It's it's really people easy. People pitching for jobs, pitching to get hired. I mean, that's essentially yeah. what, what Barr did himself. This is the art of politics with Amy Mann. Yeah, yeah, we're we're dipping <laughs> dipping into politics today because because of our guest. I mean, Eli Addy, who's our guest, is such an interesting person because he started out being a speechwriter for Gore and and others. And then transitioned to writing for the West Wing and then writing on House and writing on a bunch of other shows. And he's just has a, had a really interesting career and is a very interesting person. Yeah. One of the reasons that the interview is, is as long as it is is because he's such a great talker. He's such a great speaker. It's obvious why. He, he got his first political job writing speeches for the mayor of New York, David Dinkins. And it's obvious hearing him speak why someone would grab him and say, you should... Uh, Try and write the way you speak. <laughs> it is fascinating the type of creative thought that goes into writing a speech for someone else. It really is a creative enterprise in, in a way that you wouldn't expect. I agree. To swing it back to our bailiwick, have you ever written a song for a proverbial constituency of one? <laughs> Something you would want to land universally, but that really you just had one person in mind when you were writing it? Ted, all of my songs are for <laughs> constituency of one, and that one is me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, that, like, it kind of is true, though. Like, I sort of write the song, a kind of song that I would like to hear. You know, I mean, like, I try to take a stab at writing the kind of song I would like to hear from somebody else. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think I'd do that too. The idea that not just the kind of song you would want to hear, but to a degree, because 
you know, neither of us are reinventing the wheel in terms of hearing a completely new music or something. Um, there is a component of wanting to hear the kind of song you'd want to hear from someone else. That yeah. crucial part at the end there, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I'd be able to, I mean, you know, I'm actually, I'm, as you know, writing on a couple of musicals. So I am technically now writing for other people to sing, but the song itself is still, I still have to get a kick out of it. Like I, I've written songs and then come back to them because, because I'm like, I just, that uh, those chord changes are just too, you know, they're too, you know, it's not my thing. Like I have to, I have to kind of nudge it back into, into my wheelhouse, I guess. Well, hopefully this podcast has helped us both graduate from continually writing for a constituency of one to at least thinking about a constituency of two. That being you and I (laughs) and what we want to hear. Yeah, you know, I mean, that is a different, like when we wrote together, obviously, like I did think about what I thought you might want to hear or, you know, what would please you. But I I think that's probably the only time I've, Mm. I've, I've done it, you know. But you didn't do that, you didn't do that in contradistinction to what you would want to hear, right? You never subverted your own ideas about what you would want to hear. You just used the idea of what someone else might want to hear to help you extend yourself in another direction? Yeah, I mean, I think I like the idea of adopting the things about your music or my interpretation of your music that I didn't naturally gravitate towards. Too many chords, too many lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was like, like a fun, you know, like I wanted to try... Like when you have a best friend in school and you you know you like trade shoes mm-hmm. and like wear each other's jackets. Yeah, it's yeah. like that. Right. Wanted to wear your jacket. <laughs> we could probably trade jackets. I mean, my shoulders might be a little more broad, but I don't. I don't want to. I wouldn't want to rip a hole in the armpit of your jacket. Well, you tend to wear them tight. Yeah, that's true. You know, so that <laughs> maybe it, maybe it'll work out. All right. Well, we'll next time we're on tour, we'll uh, switch jackets every night. We have discussed the next time there's a both tour wearing matching denim jumpsuits. That's true. Just as a concept, you never know where it's going to go. Our sartorial choices for stage wear also representing a constituency of two. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Hey, we're expanding by 50%. That's right. Well, let's get into it with Eli Addy. Podcast gold that you missed. Well, we're rolling again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're here with Eli Addy, who I met as a writer on the the West Wing. But you've had a very uh, an interesting and slightly checkered career in in my mind because of where you yeah yeah checkered has a connotation. Yeah, it has been. You ran from the law (laughs) for three years. You were eventually captured and uh, escaped. You defrauded five people in Oregon in 1997. Yeah, that's pretty... Bigamist in Massachusetts. No, that's in... way more than checkered. Okay, so we're, I'm going to withdraw <laughs> checkered. You know, but what uh, what's interesting to me about your career is that you did not really start as a show business person. No. You started as a speechwriter for, right. for Al Gore. And what's interesting to me, I mean, writing is just like writing prose is something I can't do at all. And and it seems like that writing speeches would be so different from from writing scripts or it's vastly different. Yeah. So can you talk about, if you don't mind, starting starting from the, sure. the speech writing and how you would approach a, a speech and what 
you know, what would go into that? You know, also one of my sort of pet questions is like, I feel like when people first start out doing whatever they're doing, that there's often something that they're imitating, they're, that they're trying to emulate somebody else's voice or style. And so if you, you know, if there's any of that that was in your approach. Yeah, and there was. It's a funny thing because, I mean, first of all, I guess I should say I'm a writer. I make a living from typing things down and, you know, <laughs> handing them to people, you know, and it's it's worked out, you know, up to now at least. But I never really, I never set out to be a writer and I never, for a long time, I didn't really consider myself a writer because I really just became a political speech writer by accident. I stumbled into it and I wasn't that I wanted to do the writing. I, I found that I was good at it in this in the way that when I was in school I always did well in classes where you had to turn in papers and you know exams were a little more fraught for me I was very comfortable writing for whatever reason just from the time I was a kid so I was very interested in politics when I got out of college and stumbled into a job writing speeches um, and worked for a few people before Al Gore I worked for Dick Gephardt on Capitol Hill I also was in Bill Clinton's kind of communications office. I'd, I, I wasn't a speechwriter for him officially, but because I'd already done it, I ended up writing some speeches, and also I used to write radio addresses for him. Can and, I, can I sure. just in interrupt to ask, um, how did you stumble into it? Were you seeking to, you know, I want to work in politics, and you jump in at whatever point you can, and then were sort of steered towards speechwriting because Here, somebody recognized something in you? or was Here's it what happened. Um, nobody recognized anything in me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which uh, maybe has been the story of my life. No, that's actually not true. Far from true. I've been very lucky. You know, I've been mentored like at every you know second of my career by great people. But when I got out of college, I actually thought I was going to go to law school. Um, I, I didn't really have a reason to go, but I think a lot of people in college who are generalists and want to continue going to school, maybe mm. just because they like the structure. Maybe I had a good time in college and I think I thought law school would be more of that. I couldn't have been more wrong when I learned more about what law school really was. But I uh, took a year off between college and law school. I never went to law school, but that was the plan. And I ended up getting this kind of internship with New York City government uh, when David Dinkins was the mayor. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the internship was that you were paid a very small salary out of a fund. Uh, I guess it was to try to attract people to New York City government, maybe from other parts of the country. And I got this small salary, and it wasn't going to be paid by whatever office I ended up interning in. And I actually started working for the city in a hiring freeze. And the whole idea of the internship was they couldn't give you entry-level work. It had uh, to be better than entry-level work, and you were free to whatever office took you, the mayor's office, the Department of Transportation. So I actually kind of went around, and it was a very weird thing for like a, I don't even know if I'd turned 21 yet, you know, a 20-year-old, uh, to basically say, to, I was interviewing bosses, because mm -hmm. they all wanted somebody. You know, they were all shorthanded, and, and, and you would kind of go meet people, and obviously they would have to want me too, but somebody told me about this guy who was David Dinkins' chief speechwriter. And I don't think I'd ever thought there was such a thing. It just did not something I'd ever thought about. Uh, and I remember sitting with him uh, and saying, you know, we had a great little chat and interview. And I remember saying, um, you know, why don't I work here for a couple weeks, just as your researcher or whatever you want that isn't, you know, photocopies. And if it doesn't work out for you, I'll leave. And then I remember adding, and if, and if I don't like it, I'll leave. Right. And I remember he was very jarred when I said that, but then he, he offered me this job. And I had no background in anything, but I would just think and read and 
sort of search around for arguments for speeches he was writing. Mm. And after a handful of weeks, he assigned me a speech to write, my first speech. And, um, you know, Amy, you were talking about, are you influenced? Do you sort of emulate someone at first? This is the funny thing about starting as a professional writer, if I could have called myself that, which I didn't, as a speech writer, which is the, the person you're supposed to be emulating is the person who's going to be saying yeah. your words, yeah. right? right? David right. Dinkins, who I love and I'm actually still in touch with here and there, known for, uh, you know, one journalist wrote about him back then in the 90s that he, when he spoke, he sounded like a boilerplate lease. He oh used a lot God. of legalisms <laughs> and, uh, you know, I suggest that when you consider the alternative, you might draw mm -hmm. the conclusion that that was kind of how he spoke. So I didn't know how to really write a speech at the time. So, but I had access to City Hall and I could kind of go anywhere because I had one of those little whatever pass they had to give you. So for the couple days before I had to write this tiny little speech, which was actually a ceremony in the mayor's office just kind of acknowledging people who won some science prize, like a high school. It was the most uh -huh. least important speech anybody would ever give in the history of the country. Uh, I followed David Dinkins around. I hadn't even met him, but I would stand in the back of press conferences. I went to any speeches he gave in the complex for a couple days, and then I wrote this very legalistic, weird-sounding wow. speech that I wish I had a copy of because it read like a transcript of him talking. And so... My boss, the chief speechwriter, called me in and said, um, okay, we're throwing this out. Like, this is totally unusable, but you could do this. That's unbelievable. He, he basically really, said, really because wow. I just by ear was able to capture how he sounded. But he, he had to explain to me, because I was so naive and, you know, crazy in the way I approached it, that that's not the idea. You know, and it, it's a big misconception I learned that day and, and in the, you know, years to follow. You don't want to sound like the person. You want to sound like a much more heightened and yeah. sharpened and elevated version mm. of the person. And sometimes, in the case of some politicians, including a few that I worked for, nothing like the person at all right. because it will just drag everybody into a kind of a stupor. Yeah. Um, so, so then <laughs> we I... Need, we need those names. Yeah. 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 And, off, and, off, and off uh, off well, you know, look at the resume, I guess yeah, is what yeah. I would say. Sure. I know you don't want to go through the resume. So, so it was just this weird journey where... You know, I, I then became this kind of kid speechwriter for, for David Dinkins at first, which was great fun. And I think part of the reason I stayed in the job for so long, I was there for a few years, is that not that I was so attracted to writing speeches. I wasn't. And in fact, writing is really hard and excruciating. Even when it comes easily to you, I think it's it's something that I have always found like homework on yeah. some level. Well, that's but, what it does sound like, that it's it sounds like I have to write a paper. It's not exactly a paper. It's kind of a paper. I have to do the same kind of research, and I have to try to put it into kind of this person's voice, but with keeping these other things in mind. I mean, that is really interesting to me because it's such an assignment, and yet it is a creative act. I mean, did you feel it? Maybe you didn't feel that it was creative. I mean, when you were doing it. You know, what's funny is that I didn't at first. And um, within a year or two of starting to do it, I found the creativity kind of over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't, and, and it absolutely came through, through mentorship. It was when he started running for re-election in particular, and some political consultants and pollsters kind of descended on the office and looked at what I was doing and probably thought it had some promise but could be, you know, punchier and, and you know, worked with me a bit and even just some other, you know, uh, there was a good friend of um, David Dinkins who 
who wrote a few speeches for him that kind of threw out the rule book. Mm -hmm. Like an interesting thing about writing speeches is that it can be a creative form, but usually you've got about 10 bureaucrats standing over your shoulder telling you, no, 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 you need to say in the speech that this will be authorized in fiscal year, you know, 97, but not implemented until fiscal year like 99. You have to actually write that in the speech. And at first, when you're a young speechwriter, and it's probably even an older speechwriter, you think, well, this is the commissioner of, you know, whatever, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the person you're writing for sounds terrible, yes. and the speech sound bombs. And it's at the point when you start saying no to those people, even if you have a lot less power than they do, and the politician you're working for, who is their boss, realizes that you can make him sound a lot better if he lets you say no to people. Wow. And so... You end up, I I don't want to say with power, but a funny thing that happened throughout my career as a speechwriter, my reasonably short career as a speechwriter, is that if you can make them sound good, and if they know that the stuff that other people are pushing on them kind of weighs them down, then they let you be arbiters of some some things. Who Mm -hmm. can be in the room? Who can be part of that process? Uh, So somebody once said to me that, Speechwriting is the art of keeping the speech, the speech drafts, out of as many hands as possible. Wow. And, and, and it's probably a bit like songwriting or fiction or other kinds of writing in that you almost need to keep people off your back, keep people out of the yeah. room so that you have a little space to be creative. Yeah, right. to, to, yeah it's like setting boundaries as a creative tool. That's yeah. really interesting. And avoiding unsolicited feedback. Yeah. And then also, though, learning a form, whether it's actually trying to get the cadence of the person you're writing for, as you've mentioned, following right. uh, Mayor Dinkins around. Um, and yet, you know, attempting to inject it with some humanity and some drama and et cetera. And I don't want to get too far ahead because I'd like to talk more about your speech writing. But but I do imagine that that probably helped with your transition to uh, dramatic writing. For sure. For sure. And, and, and I can... I can talk a lot about the transition to dramatic writing. One of the sort of disappointing things about that was how little writing had to do with dramatic writing when Uh, I first started doing it. thats I mean, there obviously is writing involved, but it's less about the mere writing than writing a speech is. But it's funny to think about it. I haven't thought about it in a while. But when I started out as a speechwriter, I just, I stumbled into it. It was something to do before going to law school. And then I ended up in Washington and I worked for Congressman... Dick Gephardt, and I worked in the White House, and um, this is odd to say, but I did have a very fertile creative period as a speechwriter, I felt, um, where I was very excited by it. I was taking a lot of risks, um, and I was writing a lot of stuff that felt, it felt like I achieved flow, Mm. you know, like I could sit down. It was mostly, it was toward the end of working for David Dinkins, and my whole time working for Dick Gephardt, Uh, and it was in the case of Dick Gephardt, who's an incredible person, he he just gave me a lot of room. Yeah. He, he, his view, which is not a typical politician's view, he wasn't a micromanager. He wasn't over my shoulder. He didn't think all of his ideas were the best ideas. Uh-huh. So his view was, well, this is what you do, so you do this. Mm. And, and, you know, he would steer it and he would have opinions. But um, in terms of rhetoric, he kind of let me do it. And I read a lot of books about of great speeches. It wasn't so much books mm-hmm. about speech writing. And I was very influenced by, you know, the Kennedys, like everybody, Jesse Jackson in oh, some yeah. ways, oh, yeah. because he was somebody who would not follow rules. Mm-hmm. Like I saw him speak somewhere 
And I just remember him just going off on this riff in his speech that went from literal to abstract, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't imitate him, but it was like, you know, broken glass, broken dreams, yeah. you know, and it just seemed like he kind of went from talking about something to just... Yeah, abstract poetic. Yeah, yeah. and it was so exciting because, you know, I started to realize these don't have to be complete sentences. They don't have to be complete ideas. You can paint a picture. You can have fun. You can be feisty. You can tell jokes. Um, and I remember Dick Gephardt would sometimes come to me with... Um, He'd read an article and some economist had an interesting line or, or he found a quote of Bobby Kennedy's about a subject and he'd write it on a piece of paper and hand it to me in the morning. And uh, it, this may be the last time as a writer I had any confidence in some ways. You know, I think you're, anybody trying to do something creative, you know, you're always struggling a little bit in that way. But I remember saying to him, um, to the point that he stopped giving me the quotes, I said, I don't want to quote other people. I want people to quote you. Oh, wow. mm. Like basically we're writing the quotes. We're creating yeah. the quotes. Wow. And he was at a certain point he said, Okay. Who doesn't cool. want to hear that? Yeah. I mean Yeah. No, can but I... I felt I could do it, which I have never felt about anything again. Did, at this point did did you start to develop or learn about your own formulas or rules of thumb? Like did you start to as you're going along, you know, feel like, Oh, it works better if I put this here or if I save that for there? Or was it more absorbing and instinctual? The thing I'm, I don't, I don't really miss writing speeches because it, it's a limited creative form. There's, you know, I don't know, 11 kinds of speeches maybe, you know, genres of speech. And I, I did them all so much. But I think what was great about it and what I miss about it is that it was, you know, speeches are short. They should be short. I mean, any speech that's 40 minutes should really be 12. Yeah. Uh, As we've, we've learned that doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Any conversation that lasts for 80 minutes should be 40 minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's, there was never any good speech that I wrote, first of all, in more than one sitting and without achieving some kind of flow. If you're writing a, a, a State of the City address or working on a State of the Union address or writing a convention speech for somebody running for president and all, you know, all things I worked on as a speechwriter, unfortunately those you have to map out and there's 19 policy proposals and they're never really great speeches. They can yeah. have great moments in them, but the best speeches, even if they're policy speeches, are reasonably short, punchy tone poems. And I always felt like I would sit down with a cup of coffee and get in a zone and not even be aware of the time, and then it would be done. Wow. And so anything that required an outline, mapping it out in advance, making a list of points you wanted to make. You know, I'd meet with people, I'd talk to people, I'd have all kinds of scribble notes to myself. Right. But then the gist of like the, the rhetoric and, mm -hmm. and what... You know, you usually would try, I would try to find some rhetorical hook, you know, or, or I, rhetorical idea at least to open with or to structure the arguments around, uh, which is nothing groundbreaking. But then you would just try to let it pour out of you. Yeah. And um, if you had to return to it on another day, usually you were going to make it worse. Oh, that's wow, really That's, that's yeah. really interesting in, in a lot of ways what one might think would be a more uh, regimented process than, for example, songwriting, actually seems like it's more of a free-flowing <laughs> endeavor. Yeah. Well, know? at its best. And, you know, the funny thing is, I, I, I worked for Al Gore. You know, that was probably the most significant speechwriting job I had. I was his chief speechwriter for three and a half years through the Florida recount, yeah, you know, yeah. worked with him on his concession speech at the end of that. 
I love Al Gore. I'm very proud of, you know, having worked with him. But he was deeply involved, as he probably should have been. I mean, he it was his intellectual property. All the speeches were in his name. I would say a typical speech that I worked on with him would have a lot of his language and ideas. But as much as I love the guy still, I never was able to achieve flow mm. because it wasn't really... I never was given control over the product. Yeah. So I think it became regimented, and, and also he was running for president. It was a kid, you know, shouldn't in, in his 20s, shouldn't have been allowed to just go off and have a cup of coffee and come back a few hours later right. with whatever it was. Or or maybe he should have. Yeah, I know. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's... You lost us, the presidency. <laughs> yeah, I, I... We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more The Art of Process. Creaky chair, huh? Yeah, I'm in the room with the creaky chair. Back on the creaky chair, can I ask you a question? Uh-huh. How's your mattress? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? My mattress is, is honestly pretty great. Now, let's launch right into yeah. our sponsor. Support for the Art of Process comes from Casper, a sleep brand that is dedicated to continuing to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. One night at a time, as opposed which to... Is, <laughs> which is like all of the nights. All nights I'm, in one night. <laughs> I'm not really sure why you have to specify one night at a time, but I'll let it stand. Now, as it happened, when we got the news that Casper was interested in sponsoring us, we needed a new mattress and I really like it. It's, we have like a platform bed and um, it's interesting because it isn't like any other mattress. It is both firm yet soft at the same time. And I can't explain what that means or why, but it's like most firm okay. mattresses have that like, cause I like a firm mattress, but it has that like, ow, you're chafing my hip hmm. thing when you sleep <laughs> on your side. Uh, I don't want to interrupt your flow, but I was trying to figure out a way for us to do this ad. You're going to have to take on the bulk of the selling of this because I have not experienced a Casper mattress yet. But maybe I can ask you a few questions. Yeah, ask me some questions. Okay, so have you dealt with like a Swiss foam mattress topper ever before? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, I was looking to find out the differences. So we'll just You want to compare that. and contrast? Look, I'm not saying I've been around the mattress block a lot. I don't know every mattress type that there is. I'm just saying this, to my experience, is unusual and very comfortable. And I am a fan. One thing I hear about when people get their Casper mattresses is the enjoyment that they derive from the unboxing experience. Did you have a fun unboxing experience? <laughs> well, it's weird. It's weird because it comes in a fairly small box and you're like, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> and then you you roll it out and then over this space of a couple of hours, oh. it cha it changes shape and puffs out and becomes the mattress that it was born to be. Wow, it's like a reverse shrinky dink over time. Exactly. Exactly. Reverse shrinky dink. At Casper, mattresses are designed and engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Yes, I felt like my natural geometry was cradled and really? soothed. Really? Like the Fibonacci sequence of your... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> of your various curves and straight parts and... Re well, it's like that. It's like I said, the that a firm mattress 
I don't, you know, like when you sleep on your side, it just kind of hurts your hip. But then a soft mattress is like, uh, I don't want to float on a bed of uh, feathers or whatever. Or sag into a hammock shape. When, yeah, I don't want to sag into a hammock shape. Exactly. Right. There's also free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. Quote, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep on it trial. I've had experiences on very expensive mattresses that I had high hopes for. And those hopes were dashed, but Casper came through. Our listeners can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash art, A-R-T, as in the name of this podcast, The Art of Process, and using the promo code art, A-R-T, lowercase, at checkout. That's casper.com slash art and promo code art for $50 towards select mattresses. Terms and conditions apply. It's funny because at their best, you know, speeches can have a lot of emotion. They can have a lot of inherent drama. Now, this is in the writing. I'll be the first person to say that you can write a very moving, wonderful little tone poem of a speech and then it gets delivered at, you know, Brookings on a Tuesday morning and nobody cares (laughs) and nobody hears it. And the person delivering it doesn't have that same connection to it that you had writing it. I also found a political consultant who had written a lot of speeches once said to me that he... He tried to avoid seeing speeches he had written delivered at all costs because it was always so heartbreaking to him. And I think he pointed out to me, I, I actually kind of did feel that way too, because it's basically... It's a bunch of bad actors. Well, yeah. You know, and, they're and, all bad. Yeah. None of them are good and, actors. And, and now having had the chance to work with some really good actors as a, as a television writer, as a screenwriter... You know, when you have, I don't know, Martin Sheen or, you know, Brad Whitford saying your lines, it, they infuse it with something you never could have. Mm. And for the typical politician, it never matches the sound and rhythm in your head. It yeah. just never does. Did you ever uh, have one of your speeches for a politician achieve that, do you think, where they, they really brought something to it that maybe you hadn't expected? Yeah, absolutely. But I think the times that happened tended to be... You know, the first speech I wrote that got a lot of attention was actually when David Dinkins conceded his reelection. And at the time, it was a very rough campaign, and Rudy Giuliani was running against him, and uh, it just got very ugly and very personal. Boy, do I remember that. Yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was an unhappy uh, night <laughs> that evening. But, you know, David Dinkins' speech was very gracious. Uh, actually, it was a point made to me by a political consultant. I wrote the speech by myself. I didn't show it to other people. Even David Dinkins didn't ask to see it until he had to deliver it. But a, some political consultant said to me some version of, you know, be so gracious that you make yourself nauseous. Like bend over, you know, mm-hmm. write the speech well, you won't want to write because mm-hmm. that will be the way he'll want to go out right. if he has to go out. And um, the delivery was fantastic because the moment had inherent drama. Right. Yeah. It wasn't a Brookings, you know, sort of policy dry policy tracked on a Tuesday morning. It was a, a the end of someone's career and a turning point in a city, yeah. you know, in a city's yeah. life. And, you know, those are the kinds of moments. Um, I worked on a speech with Al Gore. He wrote a lot of it himself, uh, dictated a lot of it to me over the course of an all-nighter, actually, although I wrote chunks of it, too, which was a eulogy for his father, who was a very powerful oh, wow. senator from Tennessee. And that was an amazing delivery. Uh, I mean, partly because a lot of it had come from Gore himself, but where it's the 
son looking back on the father's life and kind of the inheritor and the jumping off point of everything he was and you know he's about to run for president and maybe achieve his father's dream i mean it was yeah, yeah. it had so much in There's it a lot in that there. that you it couldn't help but be a, a sort of a very connected delivery as yeah. opposed to this is the problem with speech writing at the end of the day which is you're you know somebody like me comes up with a bunch of ideas and you shove them into somebody's hand as they're walking down the hallway of the cannon building. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then they get to the podium and it's not their life. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not right. their experience. Yeah. Right. And you try to channel their experience and you try to get to know them well and know their, you know, uh, 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 former boss of mine, chief of staff to a politician once said to me that he felt, this was Al Gore's chief of staff once said to me, he felt my relationship with Gore needed to be like priest and penitent. We had this conversation wow. in the context of there was something we were trying to get Gore to do and Gore was resisting and I guess the chief of staff was having arguments with him about some policy or something and I think I may have said, well, I'm going to meet with him later today. Do you want me to... And, and he didn't want me to push hard on Gore because he was sort of acknowledging that my relationship with Gore had to be more sympathetic. Yeah. Not that I couldn't occasionally weigh in with an opinion, but... But at the end of the day, you can't get into a fight with him because yeah. he needs to then be able to sit down with you and talk to you about he, his he dad. He has to really you know, trust and, you right. yeah, in a, on an emotional level. It's a weird kind of writing because you're appropriating someone else's narrative. You're trying to be emotionally connected because that's the only way to do good writing anyway. Yeah. But it's not, they're not really your emotions. You try to find a way in. Yeah. What, what do you think that you brought from that, the skills that you brought from that, that could be applied to dramatic writing once you were on the West Wing? Yeah. And, and well, can I just add to sure. that what you just said about what is required of you in, in writing a speech like this? Again, it seems to dovetail at least with the job of dramatic writing, right? It does. I mean, here, here's the thing. The funny thing is, is this. I became a screenwriter, a television writer, by total fluke accident. And it was really a grave misunderstanding <laughs> that there was more similarity between being a speechwriter and a screenwriter than there is that made me take a crack at it. Uh, and, and really, the way it all started for me is that I was... Um, unemployed at the end of the Florida recount. It was actually in the middle of the Florida recount when I was just realizing I was probably going to be unemployed that I got an email from an, an old friend who I'd kind of lost touch with who was a talent agent in LA at the time and who just jokingly said, you know, if this doesn't work out, you should sell out and move to LA and become a screenwriter. And I just thought to myself, speechwriter, screenwriter. It just seemed, yeah, it's writing, it's kind of writing for somebody else to speak. How could it be that much of a leap? It makes sense to me. Me too. So now <laughs> yeah. you will explain how we're, we're wrong. Prove us wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it, look, I, it's funny because knowing how to put a couple sentences together is very helpful, obviously, to being a screenwriter. And I think that the thing my speechwriting background helped me with right away was writing dialogue, which is to say I'm not trying to to explain a concept. I'm trying to, it's, it's words as they would be spoken. Uh -huh. It's writing by ear. It's kind of having a rhythm in your head as you write. And that is incredibly helpful and incredibly important. But I think in some ways, my speechwriting background, certainly working on the West Wing in particular, it was more helpful in some ways that I had had these absurd personal relationships with politicians and had this odd perspective of like working for these powerful people, but then they kind of get up on a 
podium and for 23 minutes you sort of own them yeah. it's a little bit like being john malkovich you're kind of inhabiting their mm. body i think it was the absurdity and the inside experience that almost served me as well at the beginning just right. having all the stories to tell and always i think as a speechwriter you're always a you always feel like an observer and an outsider because mm -hmm. you're what you're doing isn't even supposed to be happening. It's supposed to be a politician doing something that they're making up on the spot or that they wrote. That's the kind of loose fiction, yeah. right? And you're just kind of standing in the wings watching something that weirdly you're not even supposed to acknowledge you're a part of. It's and so, so I think it was that perspective that helped me learn how to tell these kinds of stories. But to answer your question, Amy, about why is it different, when you write a speech, it's just basically an argument. Let me tell you why my Medicaid plan is great and why why Ted's Medicaid plan sucks. That's all you're doing. It is uh, it is one-dimensional writing. But when you're writing a script, first of all, there are visuals and there are emotions. Mm -hmm. There's also, you know, plot twists and surprises. You're trying to stay ahead of the audience. Sometimes the emotional arc of a story is, very often is separate from the plot moves of a story. So you're kind of following those two threads at once. I mean, I could you know, have the same plot to a script, but it be telling the story of the day Amy decided to become a devout Catholic or the day Amy decided to blow up the White House. You know, like those are plot and emotion are sort of different things. Um, and then just the architecture of a script, how much information you parse out, you know, how carefully, how slowly to stay ahead of the audience, you know, to kind of, you know, sort of surprise them and what the what the characters are revealing about themselves. So you spend weeks and weeks and weeks doing these careful outlines where you are building this blueprint, and then like the last 8% of it is you write the thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like different. there is a lot of methodology, a lot of, a lot of structures, a lot of uh, absorbing how, how, how scripts are usually structured, how different stories are structured. There's a, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of scaffolding to, That's right. to absorb mm -hmm. and to construct right. before you can toss, toss some dressing on it. How big was the room when you started working? Uh, was the West Wing where you started working first? Yeah, in the yeah. So and and basically the way that happened in very short form is that um, I had gotten the idea planted in my head from this guy who wrote me an email, this talent agent, and I knew from somebody that I knew in college who was working as a television writer already that there were these teams of people who worked on TV shows. So I thought. After the Florida recount happened, I was so disgusted with Washington and wanting to kind of change my life and try something different that, you know, I thought maybe I should just move to L.A. and take a shot at something risky and fun like this, like being a screenwriter. But I wasn't about to move out here and turn down, you know, political jobs and what mm -hmm. could have been a continuing career there to just have it get an apartment somewhere and try to write a screenplay, which I wouldn't have known how to do. So I thought I should I should get a job on a TV show or I should try. And I started telling friends of mine in Washington, I'm thinking of moving to LA and becoming a television writer. And this is in the couple weeks after the recount ended. Every single person I said that to, 40 people in the space of two weeks said, The West Wing. You should go work on The West Wing. Mm. It's this TV show had been on the air for a year and a few months probably at that point. And, you know, it was about what I had just done. I love also like just that the, the idea is like, just knock on the door and yeah, say right. like, I'm here. Right. <laughs> well, so the funny thing is, and that, that sounds ridiculous. And, and um, now as a sort of a Hollywood person, the idea of just calling up somebody who has a big hit TV show out of the blue seems a little brash and a little silly. But at the time, it made a lot of sense to me because... When I got the idea, I'd read a uh, Washington Post profile of Aaron Sorkin, 
and I knew enough from that profile that he was this sort of youngish guy who was trying to depict politics in a decent and honorable way. I watched a few episodes of the show, which I hadn't really seen and, and liked it. And, and it was so breezy. I thought, how hard could this be? Uh, I didn't know anything about it. It turns out it's very hard. But um, I, I literally called him out of the blue. And in fact, what I did is I called um, Los Angeles Information from my apartment in wow. Washington. What? And I asked for the general number of NBC. Uh, which is because I and I, I probably could have figured out I knew a lot of people I probably could have figured yeah. out a way to ha get some kind of introduction but I just thought I'll just call the guy and uh, I got the switchboard of NBC and, and I said I'm trying to reach the West Wing and they said you actually need to call the studio which is Warner Brothers and they gave me that number uh, I called that number and they switched me over to the West Wing offices I said I'm trying to reach Aaron Sorkin they switched me over to his office uh, the woman who answered the phone who still works for him today actually uh, I said, he doesn't know me. I worked for Al Gore till a couple weeks ago as his speechwriter. Um, and she put me on hold and then Aaron got on the line. That's oh well, it's not uh, like, you, it's not like you didn't have bona fides. No, that's exactly know, right. Present, that's exactly you know, right. So. It's like, it's like somebody who was on like OJ's legal defense team right. calling law and order. Yeah. And you would get Dick Wolf on the At line. At the same time though, I mean, there is the quality and you know, forgive me for screeching this back to the music world, but there is an interesting quality to that, that I remember well from demo tape years where oh, sure. somebody you admired on on stage you want a connection you're not sure how to get to the next level of touring or whatever like literally like slide a demo tape across the stage see how it landed and every now and then somebody would call you back you know and you would actually get uh, the equivalent of a job it's a, it's a i mean i've heard so many great stories about that from music too and i guess it just speaks to the graciousness of the people on the receiving end because yeah. Um, I mean, I certainly try to have coffee if anybody says, oh, my you know, cousin is trying to be a screenwriter or he's coming out to L.A. Would you? I, as much as I can, I do that because I was so lucky. And it wasn't mm -hmm. just Aaron. It was so many people who took time. Uh, and there are plenty of people who didn't. I won't name names, but uh, I can't remember the names. But so many people did. And I wouldn't have a career here if it wasn't for yeah, that. That's fantastic. Um, but basically, yeah, he took my call. and, and I think also just the level of confidence, having a confidence in yourself that you can have a conversation with this person that's going to be cogent and intelligent and not stuttery and like, oh, my God, Mr. Sorkin. I mean, that is like that's a part of your talent, I think, that you're well, just like, I will try it. Why I will try it. What's the worst that can happen? And. You know, I mean, a lot of people don't don't try things they don't already know how to do. I think you know? I think two things on that. One is that I think it was helped along significantly by the fact that at that moment, I had no investment in it. Yeah, it was yeah, yeah, literally yeah. I'd spent not one day trying to become a screenwriter or a television writer, like not even a single day. I'd literally a couple people at bars had said to me, "Oh, call this guy," yeah. or you know, you should reach out to them. But yeah, sometimes it's easier when it's not your dream. Yeah, right. and and it became my dream over. I think in between the time I spoke to him and the time I actually got hired, which was a handful of months later because they only hire one time of year, I think I became more and more interested in it and really wanting it to happen. Um, but at the time that I called him, I had no skin in the game. But the other thing is I think it is also true, um, as sort of Ted is saying about you know sliding the demos across the stage, that sometimes people who are perceived as at the top of some food chain, uh, people don't think to call them. People yeah. don't think to reach out to them. I remember somebody saying to me a long time ago about like the governor of New York that he was actually pretty easy to get on the phone because he's sitting around and he's got 400 people trying to prevent other people from calling him, you know, trying to solve <laughs> problems. So they don't. So he's just sitting there thinking, when's somebody going to call me? Yeah. You know, um, so 
So there may be that. But but I'm sorry, Ted, in answer to your no. question, when I started on the West Wing, and the West Wing had a number of different phases in yeah. the time I worked there. I was there, I ended up being there for five seasons till the show went off the air. But when I started and Aaron Sorkin was running it and, you know, sort of at the keyboard all the time, uh, there were maybe like a nine or ten of us right. in addition to him. And how was how was the adjustment to working in, in a room with other people? Well, there, it was a big adjustment uh, because I hadn't been doing that kind of creative work in a team. But, but actually, we spent a lot of time talking in the room, but then individuals would peel off. I would go to my office and bang out a couple pages of here's what this story could be or here's what this scene could be. So enough of it was stuff where you could get into a flow. It's a funny thing. I think this was also helpful to me. The West Wing was probably by a lot of standards an intense place and, you know, a lot of work went into that show and uh, a lot of research and a lot of ideas and arguing and all of that stuff. But coming off of a presidential campaign, every day felt like a half day to me. Wow. I actually wow. couldn't believe how easy it was. You know, you'd get in at 9.30 or 10, you know, uh, there'd be a hefty lunch break. You'd be in the office till six or seven, you know, and there were there was evening work and there was weekend work, but it just wasn't as pedal to the metal as what I was used to. And, you know, sometimes when I started on the West Wing, Aaron had an office that kind of adjoined the writer's room and he would come in and out. And there was another guy there who would sort of run the staff for Aaron when he wasn't in the room, but he spent a lot of time with us. But he would come into the room sometimes and say, you know, I've been thinking about episode five and like we should really do this storyline and I'm very interested in this issue and can people look into that? And I also, I have to do a rewrite on episode four and like, can anybody think of a new scene where three minutes short or whatever it is? He'd go back into his office and coming from my sort of White House PTSD, I would be looking around the room like we need all of this in half an hour. Yeah. Uh -huh. And everyone else would just like reach for lunch menus because oh my God. it wasn't that urgent. I mean, it was... You, you had days to get this stuff done. And, right. you know, even if you failed horribly at all of it, the, the worst possible outcome was somebody selling like a little bit less liquid Tide that week. Right. Well, like it right. just yeah. didn't have the import uh, or the perceived import. Who knows what import really yeah. running around yeah. a presidential campaign actually has. Probably it's also about selling liquid Tide at the end of the day. We'll be right back after this break. Did you go on the road with, with Gore? Yes, I did. Now he had a. That's rough. That's rough. My God, it was that's, very that's rough. a tour. It was very rough. I, now he had a, a permanent traveling staff who went with him all the time. Uh, I I didn't travel with him all the time because uh, part of it might have been budget reasons. I'm not sure. But if I was with him all the time, I really couldn't have gotten the work done. Yeah, I, mean, I was right. you know I was the, yeah. his main speechwriter. There were a couple other speechwriters under me, and if it was a major speech. Or if he wanted time on the, his plane, you know, he had an Air Force plane, Air Force Two, which is a tiny fraction of the size of Air Force One. But uh, if he needed to work on it on the plane, I, I would be there, you know, and sometimes there'd be a four-day campaign swing that I would go on and then I'd drop off the road and I'd just be in Washington, you know, cranking stuff out, working with our consultants mm -hmm. and posters. But I spent a lot of time with him on the road and it was unbelievably brutal. It, yeah, was, it I, was like nothing you've ever experienced because I can imagine you would be in California and then do a sort of a red eye to New Jersey, which is, you know, five hours uh, and then just get off the plane and do your work. Day. Yeah, there was no nowhere to go to freshen yeah. up. There was and you give, know, a, give a speech that could change the course of history. Well, it was it was the days were so full 
you'd be doing so many, you'd have so many bizarre, kind of unusual, extraordinary experiences in a single day that you couldn't even process it. Wow. Um, it was great and awful at the same time. Wow. To get back to the West Wing, when you learned that you were hired, what did you do, if anything, yeah. to try to learn, you know, to try to bone up? Did yeah. you get, Very did good you get some books or talk yes. to some people? So I did all of that. I was still marginally employed when the idea was planted in my head of selling out and becoming a screenwriter, as my old talent agent friend put it. Then I got the prompting and made this call to Aaron Sorkin, who actually on that call said, come out and let's meet. And um, at that point, I started taking it a little more seriously. But the very first thing I did, and I had this good friend who was a, a sort of a sitcom writer and still is, he works on the Big Bang Theory now. And uh, he sent me a few scripts of the West Wing. He had his agents mail me like three episodes of the West Wing that had been shot to just sort of read so I could see what a script looked like. Right. First time I'd ever looked God, at something like that. To see what a script looked yeah. like. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you can't internalize from reading a few scripts what you're, what that's about. I mean, it's like looking at a few blueprints and trying to design a building. I mean, yeah. you, you can't do it. But I didn't know that. And so I sat down at my Gore campaign laptop that I still hadn't been asked to turn in you know, turn back in. And I just started writing an, a script of the West Wing. So this is the funny thing is that I'm sitting there in my little apartment in Washington with no outline, with no plot, with no story, having kind of a vague sense of who the characters are on yeah. this show. And I just wrote about 60 pages of dialogue broken up by scenes. Uh, I wish I had a copy of it. I do not have a copy of this. Wow. But, you know, it took me about a day and a half. And the whole time because I'm such an idiot, I'm just thinking, who knew that I'm an incredible screenwriting prodigy? Like, <laughs> oh it just God. turns out that this is this incredible gift that I've had that I didn't know that I had. And I got to the end of it, and I emailed it to this friend of mine who at the time was working on this show, Futurama, which was mm -hmm. the Matt Groening show after The Simpsons, who's already an experienced like television writer. And um, I'll never forget the email he sent me back. He wrote, uh, Eli, uh, already. you're a good writer, and a good person. Oh Call boy. me. <laughs> wow. It's, it's like the, my yeah. favorite email I've ever gotten. And I called him and he basically said, okay, this never happened. Delete this. That wow. You never wrote this. Wow. And why don't you fly out to my house in LA? This is a guy I went to high school and college with. Good God friend. God bless this guy. He said, guy. why don't you fly out to my house for the weekend and like, let's talk about what this actually is. Yeah, I mean, this was an incredible act of That's generosity. Real, yeah. And I did do that. And and ostensibly, it was to like maybe talk about an outline of some sample script or something. Uh, then I went to a bookstore and bought every book on TV writing I could find. And the other thing I did is I, I hadn't really watched scripted television when I was in Washington, like at all. Wow. I would come home and turn on C-SPAN, literally, because yeah. it was a total immersion kind of town. Uh, as you know. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, so I, I started watching The West Wing. I started watching The Sopranos, which I hadn't seen, and just trying to absorb, and movies, great movies. I always liked movies, but had more time. I was unemployed at the time. Just I just started watching that, reading books, talking to my friend, um, and I did manage to get you know what they call a spec script, a sample script of The West Wing done that was much better than that yeah. day and a half wow. hubristic version. Uh, that had a plot. I mean, it would not have worked as an episode of The West Wing, but it was enough that when I actually started meeting with agents, I did show it to some agents, and they kind of said, "Okay, this is an right. know, we would sign you." Um, right. So you got you got some real hands-on schooling 
from somebody who really yes. knew what they were yes. doing. A bit, a bit. And and but but it, you know the funny thing is my friend Eric who kind of counseled me, he was a comedy writer, which is different. Yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah. you know I managed to get a kind of a script together that you know I think an agent knowing I already had a job all but lined up, you know, was willing uh-huh. to sign me, but what I learned from four days on the job obliterated everything I, I mm. that came before. I just, by, by doing it, by being in a room every day with people doing it at a high level, you learn so much more than you can ever learn from books, from friends. Yeah. It's and what just, do you think, and what did you learn? Can you codify it or is it uh, all absorb, absorbable? Um, well, I'm trying to think. There's so much. There's so many different things you learn. I mean, I think, and first of all, it's very subjective. It's like songwriting. I would imagine, not being a songwriter, but I mean, maybe to break it down to its most basic terms, the the unit of currency in drama is conflict. Mm-hmm. And now conflict doesn't mean an angry fight necessarily. It can mean I want to find out when your birthday is and you're not a birthday person and you don't really want to tell me. So I need to figure out a crafty way to find out. Or I want to get something from you that you don't want to give me. Or in the case of the West Wing... You're a powerful senator and I want your vote on our bill and you don't want to give it to me. So I think the first thing I I learned, and maybe I learned it a little bit in advance of starting the job, is as Aaron Sorkin used to say, somebody has to want something and something has to be in the way of their getting it. And if you don't have that, you don't have a story and you don't have a scene. And he always would say over and over and over again, there's so many ways to think about screenwriting, but he would say over and over and over again, and I'm sure he still does, uh, not that I've had this conversation with him recently, but uh, intention and obstacle, intention and obstacle. What Mm -hmm. is someone's intention? What is the obstacle in the way of their fulfilling it? And so he was great at always focusing us on these basics, even though he was doing something at a very sophisticated level, because it's so easy to be at a place like the West Wing and say, here's the incredibly sophisticated insider anecdote I found about the origins of the social security program. Right. And who cares? But there's no, there's no, what does conflict? someone want? Yeah. Why can't they get it right. in the scene? Right. right. And so when you start thinking of it that way, you know, people used to ask me all the time and still do sometimes from outside Hollywood. Oh, you work on this TV show. Do you, is there a character you write for? You know, it's a, it's, it's a very common question you're asked by people who don't know about right. how it works. And you need two characters to even start thinking. Right. You can begin an original s- script, say, by thinking, okay, who's my central character? You know, what is the, is this the story of a person? But immediately it's like, who's standing in their way? What's standing in their way? What's mm-hmm. blocking them in life, in their head, you know, on the battlefield, you know, yeah. in the abandoned warehouse, you know, right. that's surrounded. So when you come up with ideas, and even if it was just like a four-scene story for the West Wing in my earliest days there, it would always be, well... What were my obstacles in politics? Mm. Who were the people I fought with? What were the things I had to kind of bump my head against? And once you sort of know that that's what you're looking for, then it's like you suddenly look around you and there's stories everywhere hanging yeah. off all the walls. I yeah. mean, that's it. I find it hard to, I don't know, maybe you just start to think in terms of that. Because sometimes the obstacles aren't so visible. I mean, it's, you know... I want to go to law school, but I can't afford it. I mean, I guess, I don't know, right. like it's harder to think of subtler, subtler obstacles or subtler conflicts. Like, I don't know. Can you speak to how, how you started thinking and like yeah. how, what that looked um, like? There are many ways to approach a story. As, as you probably both know, there's a podcast now that's going 
episode by episode through the entire series of The West Wing. Yes, I've been on um, it. Yes, that's right, yeah. of course, because you're a, a yeah. West Winger yourself. I'm and, actually and, mad and, uh, that I haven't been on it. I think that could easily be remedied, given your DC street cred. That's right, thank you. But they just did an episode on an episode I wrote, and I, I, I didn't listen to the episode, but, uh, but it, it, it got me thinking about it a little bit. I just noticed that they had done this, and it was an episode of the show after Aaron left the show that was called um, Constituency of One. And that was a phrase that I heard from Al Gore. Uh, I'd never heard that phrase, and it's not a very common mm -hmm. phrase. Uh, probably if you Googled it now, most of the hits would be the West Wing episode. But I was working on a speech with Al Gore early in my time with him when he was still functioning more as the vice, loyal vice president than as somebody running for president on his own. And I had some speech draft, and he scrawled in a line by hand that was basically, uh, and President Clinton's leadership on this issue has been remarkable. You know, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and he kind of looked at me and sort of with a wink said, that's for the constituency of one. Right. Oh, like basically, wow. I'm putting that line in the speech yeah. for one person to hear it. Right. And I don't know that Aaron always started, you know, working on West Wing episodes from a thematic place, but sometimes he did. And um, I remember thinking after he left the show and I was starting to write episodes kind of more from scratch. I'd started to do that a little bit when he was there. But thinking that's an interesting concept and also something that I was still trying to kind of exercise in my, you know, with a, like exercise a demon within myself, which was having lived a life in politics that wasn't really for myself. Uh -huh. you're, 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 you're all day long, you're thinking about this other person, you know, and even the vice president of the country, you know, is sometimes in the shadow of another person thinking, how do I please glorify, get what I want from another person? And it seemed like a ripe concept. It was what that building is all about in some ways. And a, a phrase that was rife with sort of not just conflict, but kind of um, conflict within yourself too. Uh -huh. And right. so, so I, I just remember hitting on that idea, and then every storyline was a, was a different take on that idea. The idea being, um, what is like what it's like when you're not living for yourself. Yeah. Right. What are the repercussions for you and for the people around you when you're actually either choosing to live in service of another person or rejecting that idea in a culture where that's what it's all about. Right. Well, now. That makes me think of, a, of parallels between the West Wing and House. Mm. because Interesting, because I don't know how many I think there are in some ways. Well, in the sense that you've got these two ensemble casts that are in many ways working for a constituency of, of one. That's you know? true. That's very and, true. Um, also, in the way that the medical team on House is sort of always has to function at this high level, attempting to solve this one problem. It's a 24-7 job. It, it seems to mirror a lot of the dynamics of the ensemble in the West Wing in a, in a way. That's true. And actually, now that you mention it, despite my knee-jerk, there's nothing those shows have in common. One thing they do have in common is that, at times at least, both shows could be very thematic. In fact, House, I think, was was more thematic than the West Wing in, in that each episode would be you know, the patient would come in and have a seizure and you'd think it was lupus or whatever. Uh, but around that medical story, the patient would usually start some conversation among the doctors about something in their lives that would get them talking and acting. And that would often be a thematic idea. And I sometimes mm -hmm. started, you know, episodes of that show from that thematic place. Here's what the concept is. What's interesting about the two shows for me, uh, I had this great experience on the West Wing and was there till they turned out the lights. And, and uh, then I ended up getting this job on house. And within the broadest sort of structure of um, television writing, 
what you would do within a storyline and within a scene were it was apples and oranges from the West Wing because House was a kind of a you know the West Wing tried to be sort of wish fulfillment and um, there was a you know at times anyway an underlying warmth and a kind of a family environment whereas House was this damaged drug addicted self hating guy who wasn't really nice to anyone uh, or very rarely. And it was really insult humor and um, kind of uh, screwing people over to make interesting points to them. Yeah, if it was a family, it was alcoholic dad that everybody tried to, yes. t- tried to please and walked on eggshells around. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I, think the, the, I think the idea of House in some ways is that the truth is really ugly and painful. And, and you know, House was within the world of the show... Uh, you could argue sort of this heroic figure because everything he does is in the service of the truth, mm-hmm. but it often means really kind of hurting the people around him. Whereas on the West Wing, you know, we used to joke, uh, when I started working there, one of my best friends in New York started watching the show because I was there and called me one day and said, you know, I've noticed something on the West Wing that I've only ever seen on the Brady Bunch, which is that characters go around each other's backs to do nice things for each other. and so I actually mentioned that at work and we used to call it in the writer's room of the West Wing after that like a Brady Bunch moment like we kind of need a Brady Bunch moment there were no Brady Bunch moments on on house (laughs) it was uh, I don't even know what the equivalent is one more break and then we'll be back with the art of process I'm always interested in how people practice their craft but I mean it it just sounds like for you being thrown into the room (laughs) and being forced Forced to yeah, do it, you know, yeah. forced to come up with a couple right. of pages on a certain assignment. That's a, your practice. It's a funny thing. I wish, I feel like, actually, I had this conversation with the two of you the last time when I had dinner with you guys. Right. That, that, you know, my mother always used to, um, she loves still uh, Anthony Trollope. And she has told me many times that Anthony Trollope kept office hours. He would start typing probably on a typewriter. Maybe there weren't even typewriters then at... Uh, you know, nine in the morning and take a break for lunch and then work until, you know, 5 p.m. And then he was done for the day. And that if he finished a novel at 4.30 p.m. on some day, he would put a blank piece of paper in and spend a half an hour starting the next novel that day. And I wish I had anywhere near that kind of discipline. And this is probably a rationalization. I probably just don't have discipline. But when I was a speechwriter, I mean, working for Al Gore, and there there was a team of us, but we had to produce sometimes four or five speeches a day. Oh, my God. And, um, you know, there'd be usually one that would really be the focus and that we'd be trying to make news from, and then the others might be just, you know, talking points for something at at an embassy or, you know, something kind of boilerplate. But all this material, I had deadlines morning, noon, and night, and then you'd get calls at 11 p.m. and, you know, this, you know, George W. Bush attacked us on this issue. we got to rip up the speech and it has to be something different. So whatever ability I ever had if I ever ever had any to just do work on my own because I it's fun to do mm-hmm. or because I need to do it uh, those nerve endings are long gone yeah you um, had discipline imposed yeah. upon you so if I have like a couple months off between seasons of a tv show or between d- deals I'm in or jobs I'm doing I usually squander the time I usually think <laughs> I'm gonna write the great American novel or a screenplay or do something and it's rare that I do because then I get back into some kind of a structure. I'm working on a TV show. I'm in a deal with a studio and I have to write up an original script for them. And the deadlines come so fast and furious. On House, David Shore, the 
guy who created the show and ran the show, he would sometimes say, okay, next Wednesday, everybody come in with five medical ideas for like new medical stories on the show. And, you know, you'd go off and you'd have five medical ideas by that day. Some days I, if I was trying on my own to come up with them, I just couldn't come up with anything. Yeah. But when the gun is placed to your temple yeah. and when the trigger is pulled back, somehow you just do it. Yeah. You scramble, you make calls, you you dig deep, you you steal from yourself, you steal from others, and you cobble <laughs> a bunch of things together. So I've never had writer's block. I've never failed to come up with the five ideas if I've been asked to come up with them. But it's, I've also... I'm never sitting around thinking, boy, here's these 10 things I'm dying to write. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. What uh, What's happening now? What's happening right now? Well, I'm actually, it's a funny thing because, you know, I worked on the West Wing for a long time. I worked on House for a long time. And since then, I've been in a few different deals with TV studios that are mostly broadcast-oriented studios where you work on shows for them and you also create original material. So at the moment... I'm, I'm working on a legal show produced by Shonda Rhimes for ABC, and I'm in a deal with ABC Studios, which is Disney, where I'm supposed to do um, some original material. Uh, you know, I, I'm very fortunate. I, I, you know, I have had l no lack of sort of patrons and opportunities. Uh, I feel sometimes like I'm the last guy working in broadcast television. <laughs> you know, there's like a, a revolution going on in television, and I'm not part of the revolution. Yeah. Um, so the long answer to that question is, Right now I'm in a deal where I'm working on this legal show and I'll probably write an original script for ABC at some time in the winter. Um, but, you know, I think all the time about should I try something edgier and, and riskier. I have a kind of a screenplay that I wrote a while ago that, you know, I've been talking with a director about that's more of an indie sort of thing. I have a couple ideas for TV scripts that are really not suitable for broadcast. So... You know, at the moment, I'm working on this show, which is perfectly good time and enjoyable and thinking about how to storm the barricades, I guess. I have one last question, because we've talked a lot about structures being imposed from the outside, structures that just, you know, reside within the, the form of, of screenwriting or speech writing. And it's clear to me, it's clear that you're that you're a very hard worker, that you study hard, that you ask for advice, that you accept advice. So you have all of those things, you know, that are dictated by will almost. Um, or fear or desperation. Yeah, will, fear, desperation or, yeah. Um, Anxiety. But what's the little piece of magic? And like, what do you think that you're like, I don't know, I just can do it. The part that can't come from just hard, hard work and study and practice. You know, I will say that as a speechwriter, I probably had certainly a phase of it when I was given the running room where I found a voice. And it's a weird thing to say because it, the words were spoken by somebody else, but uh, a bit of a style that was just a hybrid of things I liked and speeches that had moved me. And, and I think as a TV writer, though, I still hope and feel that there's a great phase of my career coming of more original work as opposed to working on these shows. And I've had a great career working on some great material, you know, initiated by other people. I think it's being able to embrace people's complexity. Mm -hmm. I think it's being able to inhabit the brain of somebody, a character who's very kind of in their own way and complex and um, express that through, you know, dialogue. I mean, you know, it, it, if I get the architecture right, 
if I sort of know here's my character and he here's why he's a bit of a mess and here's the journey he's on, then I, I just have a lot of fun writing that. And I think I gravitate toward human absurdity. I'm not a comedy writer, mm-hmm. but I think I love people who end up in bizarre situations and have to crawl out of them. And uh, it's a rambling answer. I mean, I... I no, it's, it's a good answer. I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, like I... I Look, there's so many writers who I think are so much better than me. You know, I, I really do. In this profession, I think there are many more great, great, great writers than there are speechwriters. Uh, so I don't pretend I'm at the top of some pyramid. I don't feel that way. But, you know, I've been fortunate both with some original scripts I've written and, and the shows I've worked on that I've had some patrons and people who supported my work. And at least the thing they always sort of say, people who like my work, is that it's the characters and how to dig into a character. Mm. Um, I like to make them layered, and then I like to write from that place. Can I ask one more addendum question? Of course. From your speech writing years, do you have a speech that you're particularly proud of where you really feel like everything came together and you you nailed the voice, you gave the person some, some space for themselves? Or Yeah, I, I think I do have some. I mean, absolutely one of them was David Dinkins' concession speech in 1993. Well, I should say this. I, there probably are quite a few that, I, as pieces of writing, I felt that way about, but that were just delivered at the Brookings Institute on a Tuesday morning and right. never had any impact. And they may have been better written than some that made. At least a it splash. wasn't the Cato Institute. Well, yes, this is very true. <laughs> it's <laughs> the birthday true. birthday message. But but there are some that I can't take. You know, I can't take you know full credit for Gore's concession at the end of the Florida recount because. He wrote a lot of it, and, and he also got faxed in you know, some ideas and some suggestions from a number of other people, which he and I kind of wove together over the course of a day. But you know, I did write David Dinkins' concession speech, and I also wrote a speech that Dick Gephardt gave as he handed the gavel to Newt Gingrich and ended 40 years of unbroken democratic rule of the wow. House. Wow. And they were similar speeches in a certain sense because they were both gracious concessions and passing of the torch. And those are a couple that I felt good about because how I felt about them connected with how they landed. Yeah. You know, I and, and I've done a little bit of it since uh, since coming to L.A. When Dick Gephardt ran for president in 2004, I wrote his announcement speech, and I wrote some speeches for him. Uh, I did a bit of work on uh, Eric Garcetti's inaugural, mm-hmm. the first one. I actually think some of my better speechwriting work in a while had been after I moved to LA because one of the problems, and this was true working on a presidential campaign, you have so many pollsters and consultants saying, here are the seven words you can use to talk about Medicare reform without scaring you know, octogenarians. Right. And um, so it's, it, it is a town that is afraid to phrase things in a fresh way. Yeah. One of the things I learned from Aaron Sorkin is never use the, the cliche, never use the formulation of the phrase you've ever heard. Right. You know, don't, you know, and it's and you can do great. The Sopranos would do great writing with dumb characters resorting to cliche because they don't know anything else. Mm-hmm. But without that ironic layer, uh, you always want to kind of shake people out of the staleness of what they're used to hearing. And I think some of the speeches I wrote when I started working on the West Wing for politicians who I still had relationships with were some of the better things I'd done in a long time because right. I was thinking oh. that way. Yeah, Eli, thank you. A great pleasure. Eli, that was really fascinating. Thank really you fascinating. so much. Uh, that was fun great. to think about it. It's Very been, fun. Yeah. I've enjoyed it a lot. Glad. Thank you. All right. 
Thanks for listening to The Art of Process. I'm Ted Leo. And I'm Amy Mann. Please remember to like and subscribe and do all the things that you do at all the podcast places that you go to get all the podcasts that you listen to. Do it. Like and do. Subscribe and like and do all the other things. Please subscribe and like and do. Subscribe and like and do. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.